Good to see everybody this morning. I can see you a little bit better because I've minimized my equipment up here. I'm going to try doing things a little bit differently going forward. The title of our lesson today is Counterfeits. The idea for the lesson came to me Wednesday. We were having our Bible study. And I was sorry to hear that Dan was going to be out of town today because I'm sure he would have appreciated the fact that the things we were studying in his class inspired the lesson. But nonetheless, that's why we record things, I suppose. I don't know if you've ever bought something and after you bought it, thinking it was the genuine article, you came to find that it actually was a, a knockoff. It wasn't the actual thing that you thought you were getting. It wasn't quite the quality that you were expecting. I remember not all that long ago, I came across something that I um, wanted online, and the price was just wonderful. And I'm thinking, well, it almost seems too good to be true that I could get that thing for that price. Well, the reason was because it, it was too good to be true. When I got it in the mail, it wasn't quite the quality that I uh, was expecting it to be. And so sometimes that kind of thing happens. Well, I want us to think about the idea of counterfeits in the sense of spiritual things today. You know, a lot of people buy into counterfeit um, happiness and contentment and love and peace and all the things that human beings seek after. People often buy into versions of those things that are less than genuine. They maybe don't realize that they've done that, but nonetheless, as we study some things today, I think we'll see how that can be the case, and even for ourselves at times if we're not careful. We're going to begin by reading a chapter back in the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 32. And I always kind of hesitate to read a whole chapter in a sermon because sometimes it can... If you're a little bit tired, it can kind of lull you <laughs> seemingly off to sleep. But sometimes I think that it just makes sense to read the entire chapter because it's hard to pick and choose the verses that you want to uh, notice. So we're just going to read through chapter 32 together. We're going to see here an example of the people of God who bought into a counterfeit and got themselves into some trouble as a result. Now, at this point in the narrative and the history of the Israelites, they had come out of their bondage in Egypt. They'd been led out of bondage by the power of God and the demonstration of God's power. And at this point, they'd come to the mountain where Moses went up to receive the law. And he'd been up there for a little while. 
And so the people, as we're going to read here, they start getting a little restless and wondering, well, what happened to Moses? Is he going to come back? Did he get lost up there? Did something happen to him? So verse 1 says, when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron, and they said, Come, make us gods that shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And Aaron said to them, Break off the gold earrings which are in the ears of your wives and sons and daughters, and bring them to me. It's always kind of impressive to me in a, you know, sometimes you think of impressive as a good thing, but here it's kind of a negative. How quick Aaron was to just go along with their request. You know, Aaron was right there with Moses through everything that had happened. And these people make this crazy request to have gods made for them out of uh, immaterial things. And uh, he's just, okay, well, let's do this. You know, he doesn't even try and talk reason into them. So he tells them to give them all this gold, and the people comply with that. They break off the gold earrings which were in their ears. They brought them to Aaron, and he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with an engraving tool, and he made a molded calf. And they said, this is your God. O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. How foolish after everything that they've witnessed and seen. When Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. So they rose early on the next day and they offered burnt offerings and they brought peace offerings and the people sat down to eat and drink and they rose up to play. And so now we kind of shift up onto the mountain here and the Lord, understanding what's going on, he says to Moses, go and get down for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly. And that's not an understatement. It's pretty, been pretty quick of a, of a change here in their following after the true God who's delivered them to, to idols. He says, they've turned aside quickly out of the way that I've commanded them. They've made themselves a molded calf. They've worshipped it. They've sacrificed to it. And they've said, this is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people. Indeed, it is a stiff-necked people. Therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them. And I will make of you a great nation. In other words, these people have kind of gone in the way of the generation of Noah, right? In, in God's mind at this point, he says, after all this, look how quickly they've turned away. He says, I'm just going to wipe them out and I'm going to start over again. We'll start with you, Moses, and we'll make, make of you a great nation. Kind of reiterating the promise originally that was given to Abraham. But Moses, we see, pleads with the Lord. He says, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against them, your people whom you've brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak and say he brought them out to harm them, to kill them in the mountains, to consume them from the face of the earth? So turn from your fierce wrath and relent from this harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac and Israel, your servants to whom you swore 
by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven. And all of this land that I've spoken of, I will give to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever. So the Lord relented from the harm which he said he would do to his people. And Moses turned and went down from the mountain and the two tablets of the testimony were in his hand. The tablets were written on both sides, on the one side and on the other they were written. The tablets were the work of God and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there's a noise of war in the camp. You know, Joshua evidently was removed from the rest of the camp. He was waiting on Moses to come back. And so Moses kind of meets him there on the way down. And Joshua thinks, well, it sounds like there's some kind of battle going on. But Moses corrects him because Moses, of course, knew at this point what was going on. He says, it's not the noise of the shout of victory, nor the noise of the cry of defeat, but it is the sound of singing that I hear. And so it was as soon as he came near the camp, he saw the calf and the dancing, and Moses' anger became hot. And he cast the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. It's kind of ironic in a way because, you know, at the beginning, we find Moses kind of pleading with God and saying, you know, don't don't wipe them out. Don't get so angry. <laughs> Try and be patient with these people. And now it's his turn to kind of live what he had just uh, put forth to God. And now he, he kind of understands, I think. He understands why God felt the way that he did. And, and we see that he, in his anger at seeing what they're doing, uh, he casts down the tablets and, and they break. And he goes further than that. He goes in and he takes the calf, verse 20, that they'd made. He burns it in the fire and then grounds it to powder. And then he takes that powder and it says he scattered it on the water and made the children of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you've brought so great a sin upon them? And Aaron he says, don't let the anger of my Lord become hot. You know the people, they're set on evil. And they said to me, make us gods that shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. And I said to them, whoever has any gold, let them break it off. And so they gave it to me and I cast it into the fire and this calf came out. <laughs> Aaron's trying to cover himself now, right? He's trying to alter the story as though it was some kind of supernatural event. He just throws the gold in and this calf miraculously appears. So verse 25 says, When Moses saw that the people were unrestrained, and the reason they were unrestrained, you see it interjects there, it says Aaron had not restrained them to their shame among their enemies. And it says Moses stood in the entrance of the camp and said, Whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together to him. He said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let every man put his sword on his side and go in and out from the entrance uh, throughout the camp. Let every man kill his brother, every man his companion, every man his neighbor. The sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. Moses said, Consecrate yourselves today to the Lord uh, that he may bestow on you a blessing. This day, for every man has opposed his son and his brother. 
Uh, verse 30 says, It came to pass on the next day that Moses said to the people, You've committed a great sin. So now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh, these people have committed a great sin and made for themselves a God of gold. Yet now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book, which you've written. Kind of reminds you of what Paul said many years later when he was talking about the Jews and how he wished uh, he could be lost if it would mean that they would be saved. Kind of a similar sentiment there. Moses is willing to give his own his own uh, eternal life, in essence, that uh, the people might be forgiven. But the Lord said to Moses, verse 33, whoever has sinned against me, he I will blot out of my book. So therefore, go and lead the people to the place of which I've spoken. Behold, my angel shall be before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit for, for punishment, I will visit punishment upon them. For their sin. And so the Lord plagued the people because of what they had done with the calf that Aaron had made. So lengthy reading there, but I think you can understand why trying to dissect the chapter didn't really make a lot of sense. It's important to kind of read the whole narrative there. But we see the people turned from the true and living God and they turned to idols. And we kind of scratch our heads as we read that, as we've made comments already. You know, it wasn't all that long before that that they were still there in Egypt and Moses and Aaron were before Pharaoh and they were bringing about the great plagues upon the nation of Egypt. This power of God demonstrated to finally convince Pharaoh to let the people go. Uh, they had been with Moses there at the Red Sea. And the Egyptian army closing in behind them, trapped, no place to go. They saw that sea separated with dry land for them to, to cross. They'd seen all these things. They'd seen the genuine article, right? But then they had so quickly turned from that to create their own God. Why did they do that? Well, I think that maybe we can get some answers to that as we jump back into the book just a little bit earlier. And we think about Pharaoh for a moment. You know, Pharaoh likewise witnessed the genuine article. He saw the power of God, the true and living God. And yet time and time again we read about having witnessed that, that his heart was hardened. Remember reading that throughout the first part of the, the book of Exodus there? We're going to notice a couple examples here. Uh, but I think that when we look back to the example of Pharaoh, and we ask, well, why was Pharaoh's heart hardened? Maybe we can get some answers and maybe start to begin to understand what was going through the minds of not just Pharaoh, but the Israelites later on, like we just read, and maybe then gather some insight that we can apply to ourselves today, which is ultimately what we want to do. We want to uh, 
look at these things and make application to ourselves. The Bible tells us that the things written beforehand were written for our learning. So these things aren't in here just as an entertaining story to read, but we're meant to think about them and dissect them and make application to ourselves. So if you remember in in the uh, events where Moses and Aaron are going to Pharaoh and when all that's kind of beginning, that really the first three demonstrations, where the first one, of course, being when Aaron cast his rod down and it turned into a serpent. And then there were the first two plagues with the waters becoming blood and then the frogs. In those three examples, as we're going to read here, we see that Pharaoh's magicians or his sorcerers, depending on your translation, they perform similar things. Look here in chapter 7, verses 8 through 13. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and said, When Pharaoh speaks to you, saying, Show a miracle for yourselves, you shall say to Aaron, Take your rod and cast it before Pharaoh and let it become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and they did so, just as the Lord had commanded. Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh, before his servants, and it became a serpent. But then we notice verse 11 says, Pharaoh also called the wise men and the sorcerers, uh, the magicians of Egypt. They also did in like manner with their enchantments. Every man threw down his rod and it became a serpent. But then you notice it says Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods, which indicates uh, who was more powerful here. Uh, but that's not given any attention. Notice verse 13 says, Pharaoh's heart grew hard and he did not heed them as the Lord said. Down in verse 19, it says, The Lord spoke to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your rod and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their streams, or their rivers, their ponds, over all their pools of water, that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in the buckets of wood and pitchers of stone. And so Moses and Aaron did so just as the Lord commanded. He lifted up the rod and struck the waters that were in the river. In the sight of Pharaoh and the sight of his servants, all the waters that were in the river turned to blood. The fish that were in the river died. The river stank. And the Egyptians could not drink the water of the river. So there was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But then verse 22, notice the magicians of Egypt did so with their enchantments. And then Pharaoh's heart grew hard and he did not heed them as the Lord had said. Had said. And Pharaoh turned and went to his house. Neither was his heart moved by this. You jump down into chapter 8 there, verse 5. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses, say to Aaron, Stretch out your hand with your rod over the streams, over the rivers, and over the ponds. Cause the frogs to come up onto the land. So Aaron did so. He stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land. And the magicians, verse 7, says they did so with their enchantments and brought up frogs on the land of Egypt. And so verse 12 says, Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh and Mer uh, Moses cried out to the Lord concerning the frogs, which he brought against Pharaoh. 
Uh, this is after, of course, Pharaoh is pleading with him to take him away. So the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out of the houses and the courtyards and the fields. And so they gathered them together in heaps and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and did not heed them as the Lord had said. So each of those examples, what happened? Well, Pharaoh was presented with the genuine article. He's presented with the true God. Uh, but then he had his people over here saying, well, we can do that. We can do the same thing. And when he saw what his magicians did, it was always that catalyst that shifted his, his heart away from maybe being receptive to what was being presented to him to, well, maybe I don't really care so much about that. And you think about how Satan operates with us today. Doesn't he do the same thing? And perhaps isn't that the reason that maybe we sometimes buy into counterfeit things instead of the genuine article? You think about it. He's like he's like the car salesman. Yeah, I don't want to pick on car salesmen because there's probably good, honest car salesman out there. But typically, when you think of a car salesman, you don't think of somebody who's really always telling you the truth, right? They, they've got an angle that they're coming at to try and get you to buy something. So you think about how Satan speaks to us. He'll come to us and say, well, oh, God's offering you happiness. Oh, well, I can do that. Just like the, the magicians in Egypt, right? Well, we can do that. You just need to seek after riches and, and sensual pleasures. And, and you'll have happiness. That'll make you happy. Go out and get rich and go do the things that feel good and, and you'll be happy. You don't need to think about what God's offering you. Oh, God is offering you peace of mind? I can do that. Try drugs and alcohol. You'll forget all your problems. You won't have a worry in the world. God's offering you love. I can do that. Just go along with the crowd. You'll make all kinds of friends. Do what everybody else is doing. And, and everybody will like you. And then you'll feel loved and uh, you'll, you'll be fine. Satan wants us to believe that God's way is slow, costly, and difficult. And in some senses, that's true. <laughs> I mean, if you want to be honest, there is a sacrifice we must make to follow God. Um, Jesus himself said that the way that leads to life is narrow. It is difficult, unlike the path that leads to destruction. Sometimes we have to work at things. Uh, we have to, I mean, you think about life in general just as a very zoomed out perspective. It, it takes a life of faith to result in eternity in the presence of God. So in that sense, it might seem slow, right, to get to what we ultimately would like to have. But nonetheless, Satan is selling us the quick, cheap, and easy path to happiness, peace of mind, and so-called love. 
I'd like to read with you another passage that I think illustrates this. We come to the book of 1 Kings in chapter 12, and we're not going to read the whole chapter, don't worry. <laughs> this time we will just read a section of it, but in 1 Kings chapter 12, we're going to start in verse 25 and down through the end of that chapter. Now, at this point in history, uh, Solomon's sons were fighting over the throne, and they end up dividing the kingdom, is what the end result is. And so Jeroboam here, he has made his capital outside of Jerusalem, up in the northern part of the land of Israel. And he starts thinking about, well, you know, the law says that to worship God acceptably, people have to go back to the temple, which is in Jerusalem. Well, and if the people start going back there to worship, well, they might end up being persuaded that maybe they should have stayed there to begin with. And then I'm going to lose my kingdom. I'm going to lose all my power. So what does he do? Verse 25 says, Jeroboam built Shechem in the mountains of Ephraim, and he dwelt there, and he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom may return to the house of David if these people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem. The heart of this people will turn back to their Lord Rehoboam, king of Judah. And then they might even kill me, he's thinking, and then go back to Rehoboam. So he asks advice. And it says that he made calves of gold. Isn't that interesting? just like Aaron had done all those years before. Now we find Jeroboam doing the same thing, except he doesn't make just one calf, he makes two. And he says to his people, he says, notice, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. That not that seem like a just a hassle to have to pack all your things up and make that long journey to go all the way back to Jerusalem? Listen, I, I got a better deal for you, is what he's getting at. Here are your gods, O Israel, which brought you up from the land of Egypt. Where have we heard that before? That's exactly what the people said when they made the, the first golden calf. So he sets one of those golden calves up in Bethel, and he puts the other in Dan. And this thing became a sin, for the people went to worship uh, before the one, as far as Dan, and he made shrines on the high places, made priests from every class of people who were not of the sons of Levi. Law of Moses said they had to be of the tribe of Levi. Jeroboam says, well, that seems silly. That seems a little bit too nitpicky. Everybody can be a priest. Jeroboam ordained a feast on the 15th day of the eighth month, similar to the feast that was in Judah. He offered sacrifices on the altar. He did this at Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he'd made. At Bethel, he installed the priests of the high places which he'd made. He made offerings on the altar which he'd made at Bethel, and the, again, the 15th day of the eighth month, the month which he had devised, notice, in his own heart. He ordained a feast for the children of Israel, offered sacrifices on the altar, and he burned incense.
So we see how Satan is working here, don't we? As we read these examples, consider these things. And why do people go after false gods? Why do people put uh, money and fame and pleasure and you name it as their God? Why do people set those things up and follow those things? Well, because it's easier. Uh, the results are quicker. Right. Uh, it doesn't cost them as much. They don't have to sacrifice anything typically. And so they get the pleasure of those things and they feel good about themselves, at least for time. But it's important that we notice the reality of idols. And as we think about that, I, I first want us just to take note of something because, you know, Paul references the events that we'd first read about there in, in Exodus 32 as he's writing to those in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And in verse 7, uh, he's warning those in Corinth to not be like their forefathers who did all these terrible things. And so in verse 7, he says, don't become idolaters as were some of them, as it is written. Notice the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So he's quoting from the events of the golden calf. And really, in a sense, we could say he's quoting from not just the, the original calf, but the ones Jeroboam made as well. But notice it calls them idolaters. And in that context, you know, that's typically the context we think about idolatry existing in, where there's this actual golden thing that is set up on a pedestal somewhere and people are bringing and offering sacrifices and, and doing that kind of stuff. But with that in mind, I want us to also notice a couple places. Uh, in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5, first of all, Paul here in this context is talking about uh, the old man and how we're to put off the old man, of course, with the aim of putting on the new man, as you continue to read through the chapter. But in verse 5, uh, he's reminding them of the things that they uh, need to put to death and supposedly had put to death. Verse 5, he says, therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth. And he begins to list some examples. He says, fornication, uncleanness passion, evil desire, and then notice he says covetousness, which is idolatry. Isn't that interesting? So we know what covetousness is. It's where you covet something, you want it. It doesn't matter what it is. It could be anything. But to be covetousness or to have covetousness in your heart is to where because you want that thing, you do whatever it takes to get that thing. And that, that becomes your idol. That becomes your God. And that's why he says what he says there. Covetousness is idolatry. And so I point that out because I don't want us to think of idolatry as something that is uh, restrained to the pages of history. That's something that people today are guilty of. Maybe we are guilty of it. Something similar is written in Philippians chapter 3. 
in verses 18 and 19 there. Uh, Paul says, Many walk of whom I've told you, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God, notice the language here, whose God, little g, he's not talking about the true God, he's talking about the God that they have made, and he says their God is their belly, in other words, it's their own appetite, it's their own desires, whose glory is their shame. They set their mind on earthly things. And so you put those two passages together, and we understand that an idol can be literally anything. It can be something, in a sense, that's immaterial. It's not something that necessarily we have set up on a, uh, in a shrine in our closet that we bow down to, but rather it's, you know, if we are doing everything in life, uh, everything comes second place to our pursuit of making more money or buying more things or, you know, indulging in this pleasure or that pleasure, whatever it might be. If we're living that way, then we have made whatever that thing is our golden calf. And we've, uh, we've forsaken the true God. Back here to uh, the book of Habakkuk. It's right at the end of the Old Testament there. It's kind of hard to find sometimes. Uh, Habakkuk chapter 2, and I want us to look at verses 18 and 19. God speaking here through the prophet. He says, what? What prophet is the image, we could say idol, that its maker should carve it? The molded image, a teacher of lies, that the maker of its mold should trust in it, to make mute idols, something that's mute, can't speak. Woe to him who says to wood, awake! To silent stone, arise, it shall teach. Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, yet in it there is no breath at all. Now that certainly applies to a little golden monkey that I could fashion for myself and decide is going to be my god, silly as that might seem, but it also pertains to those things that Satan dangles in our faces, right? Wealth is the same way. You know, uh, go back to the book of Ecclesiastes and Solomon talks about people who seek after wealth. They get wealth, but then, well, all right, the excitement of that has worn off. Now I need something else. I need to go buy some other new thing. And that's exciting for a while, but then, well, now that's old. I need some, some more stuff. And it just never ends. Those that are satisfied with silver or pursue after silver will never be truly satisfied by it, to paraphrase. We think about uh, the lusts of the flesh, right? It's, it's pleasurable, but it's a fleeting pleasure, isn't it? It's not something that lasts, and oftentimes it's a pleasure that brings about regret, doesn't it? And creates more problems in our lives rather than solves them. 
We think about drugs and alcohol. Oh, that'll give you peace of mind. And a lot of people, and I get irritated. Uh, my wife likes country music, some of it. I shouldn't say all of it, but she likes some of it. And I don't really care for it at all. But so many of the songs, one of the reasons I, I get irritated with it is because these songs come on and it's all about, oh, the weekend's coming, we're going to get drunk. And, you know, and it's just, I mean, that's the whole thing. And people, and I've known people, I'm sure you've known people, that they, they just live for the weekend where they can go out and they can get drunk and get high or whatever it is that they do, and they forget about all their problems. But then those highs, they all wear off. And then Monday comes back, and, well, now all my problems are still there. And now maybe I've created more problems over the weekend because I wasn't in my right mind. We can get all kinds of friends when we go along with the crowd, but what happens when suddenly we decide, well, yeah, I don't know if that's really something I want to do. You ever had a friend that was you thought was your friend, but then as soon as you decided you didn't want to go along with this thing or that thing that they were doing, it was like they were your worst enemy all of a sudden? You're thinking, what happened here? The so-called happiness and peace and love that Satan offers us that we can supposedly get quickly and cheaply and with little cost, uh, these things are not genuine. They're counterfeits. They look good. They sound good. But ultimately, there's no substance there. I look over here at the book of Zechariah. Just a few pages over from where we were uh, in chapter 10 and verse 2. It says there, the idols speak delusion. If you're deluded, uh, you're deceived. You're you bought into something that's that's just a lie. And that's that's all Satan preaches to us. He wants us to be deluded or delusional, I should say. He says, the diviners envision lies, they tell false dreams, they comfort in vain. Therefore, the people wend their way like sheep, they are in trouble because there is no shepherd. There's no real leadership, there's no real guide. The things they've set up to be guides are just preaching lies and deception. So we want to have and to know the genuine article. And God offers us that. And God has always offered mankind that. It's always been available to us. If we will but submit to him and keep his commandments, it's, it's really quite simple. Notice with me a, a few examples. Let's come over here to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, and you look at verses 19 and 20. Jesus says, Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
Don't seek after things that are just temporary. Seek the treasures that God offers you that are eternal. We think about the concept of love, of genuine love. There's only one place we can we can attain that. And the thing that I want us to notice here in Romans 5, verse 8, you notice it says God demonstrates his own love towards us. And that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. God has demonstrated that what he offers is genuine. What has Satan ever demonstrated to us? Now, he'll tell us all kinds of stuff. Oh, yeah, this is what you want to do. But what has he ever demonstrated as proof that there's any actual substance to the, the things that he sells us? There is none. But yet we can look and see that God has indeed demonstrated in giving his son, Jesus, who willingly came to the earth as a human being and submitted himself to all of the, the same trials and temptations that we face and lived a perfect life, a sinless life, and then died and suffered terrible death, all so that we might be able to live. I don't know what more demonstration of genuine love could ever be could ever be shown. Think about peace of mind. God offers us true peace of mind. Philippians, the fourth chapter there, verses six and seven. Be anxious, be worried about nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Back here in John chapter 6, you look there at verse 27. And Jesus there, as he's preaching, he says, don't labor for the food which perishes, but rather for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you. Because God the Father has set his seal on him. God's approval is stamped on the Son, in other words. And we see that through the demonstration of God's approval and power in the fact that even though he was put into the grave, that he rose again. And so we can believe in the promise that we're given here that Jesus will give us the food that does not perish, but rather that leads to everlasting life. You go back to Isaiah chapter 55, and we read prophetically about this very thing, what God would come to offer us through his son. And we're actually going to notice uh, a couple of different portions of this chapter, starting in verse 1, though. First of all, down through verse 3, he says, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You who have no money, come, buy and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money, without price. And he asks the question, why do you spend money for what is not bread? 
and your wages for what does not satisfy. It's exactly what we've been talking about this morning, right? People get caught up in putting all this effort and energy into things that ultimately leave them dissatisfied because they're counterfeits. God says, listen carefully to me. Eat what is good. Let your soul delight itself in abundance. Incline your ear. Come to me here and your soul shall live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you. You jump down to verses 6 and 7. It says there, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him. Let him return to our God and he will abundantly pardon. Down in verses 12 and 13, those that would heed this invitation, he says, you shall go out with joy. Notice the words that are used here and think about all we've been talking about. You will go out with joy, genuine joy. You'll be let out with genuine peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth into singing before you. All the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress tree. And instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree. And it shall be to the Lord for a name, for an everlasting sign. That shall not be cut off. You know, after so long, we talked about the events there in Egypt with Pharaoh and the plagues that were being brought upon his land and his people and how initially he resisted, right? He hardened his heart because, well, my magicians could do the same thing. They can give me the same thing. Why should I believe these two random guys claiming to be serving the true and living God? But, you know, after so long, it took Pharaoh little while, obviously we know, but it didn't take his magicians nearly as long to come to the realization that what they were up against was not a counterfeit. Uh, the very next plague right after the frogs had subsided is the plague of the lice or the flies. Um, and we read there in verses 18 and 19 as this plague came upon the land that the magicians so worked with their enchantments to bring forth the lice, but they could not. It says there was lice on man and beast. And notice verse 19, the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. This isn't a party trick. This is not a sleight of hand. This is not some kind of enchantment. This is something well beyond what we are capable of doing. No, this is the genuine article. This is the finger of God. But sadly, Pharaoh's heart grew hard and he did not heed them, just as the Lord had said. And so in a sense, as we think about the lesson today, we've kind of put ourselves in the place of Pharaoh. In a sense, we are looking at the genuine article as presented by the word of God. And then we're also considering the, the counterfeits that exist out here that vie for our attention. And, and now we have to make a choice. Well, what are we going to do? Are we going to be like the magicians who 
said, you know, when you really compare the two things, there's really no comparison. We need to seek after the genuine article, or are we going to be like Pharaoh who persists in his hardness of heart and his determination to do what he wants to do? Uh, that's a question that only you yourself can answer. But as we conclude today, I would encourage anyone who's here who is perhaps in need of making correction uh, to do that very thing. And if we can be of assistance in that process, uh, we would love to do so. Perhaps you're here and you've never obeyed the gospel. The scriptures make plain what a person needs to do. Steps that most of us, I'm sure, have memorized. We need to hear the word. We need to believe it. We need to confess Christ, repent of our sins, be immersed for the forgiveness of those sins, and live a life of faith, genuine faith, a life of work and growth, demonstration of God's goodness for his glory so that someday we can live with him. If you need to take those steps this morning, let us assist you in that. If you need to come forward and ask for prayers, uh, let us likewise assist you in that way, whatever the need would be. If you're subject to the gospel call this morning, please make your way up to the front at this time while we stand together and while we sing.